0: Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio on KPFK Los Angeles and KPFT Houston. A project of SoCal 350 Climate Action, our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame, featuring voices not necessarily heard on mainstream media. Eco Justice Radio acknowledges that we record the show on the traditional territory of the Tongva and all of their relatives. Welcome, I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, Feedback Loops, Climate Change's Most Critical Dynamic, I will be interviewing Susan Gray, director and Bonnie Walsh, senior producer and writer of the five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, narrated by Richard Gere. Susan Gray is the award-winning director and co-writer of Climate Emergency Feedback Loops and Earth Emergency. She began her career as an environmental political activist and now makes documentary films about the pressing social issues of our time. Her films have been aired on major television networks and around the world. Bonnie Walsh is a Boston-based freelance producer, director, and writer for documentaries and museum exhibit media, and the award-winning senior producer and writer of Climate Emergency Feedback Loops and Earth Emergency. Other recent work include a short film about super reefs for the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and Media for the Pikes Peak Visitor Center in Colorado. On today's show, we sit down with the creators of the five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. Narrated by Richard Gere, this series of five short films features 12 leading climate scientists who explore how human-caused emissions are triggering nature's own warming loops. Greenhouse gases from fossil fuels, such as carbon dioxide and methane, are warming the planet. This warming is then setting in motion ice and permafrost melting, release of more greenhouse gases, more heat and storms. These are feedback loop mechanisms, which then feed upon themselves as well as interact with each other and spiral further out of control." Today we learn why natural warming loops have scientists alarmed and why they feel we have less time to correct climate disruption than previously thought. The documentary series gives an easy-to-understand overview of the feedback loop problem and then explores four important feedback mechanisms, those being forests, permafrost, atmosphere, and albedo, also known as Earth's reflectivity. The film series Climate Emergency Feedback Loops had its official launch as a webcast with the Dalai Lama Greta Thunberg and world-renowned scientists. The series is subtitled in 23 languages and can be paired with an educational science curriculum for students grades 6 through 12. It can be viewed in full at feedbackloopsclimate.com. Thank you for tuning in to Eco Justice Radio and our show, Feedback Loops Climate Change's Most Critical Dynamic. I am your host, Jessica Aldridge, and it is my honor to welcome our guests, Susan Gray, director, and Bonnie Walsh, senior producer and writer of the five part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, narrated by Richard Gere. Welcome to Eco Justice Radio.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: I, I'm, it's pleasure is mine. Well, let's jump right in here. Um, before we dive into the details of your five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, tell how, tell us, uh, Susan, how this project came about and what are Feedback Loops?
2: So uh, our producer, Barry Hershey, came to me with an idea. We worked together on projects and he said Do you know about climate feedback loops? And I said, of course, like permafrost melting and putting CO2 and methane into the air and that heating up more permafrost, melting more and putting more into the air. And he said, yeah, well, I don't think people do. And it seemed impossible to me. And I, you know, it's like your radio, you're looking for stories that people aren't telling. And I'm always looking for stories out there that people don't know about. And it just seemed like a climate space was so well covered. It was impossible. People didn't know about this. So it began with us deciding we were gonna go around and do a poll and see how many people knew about them. And uh, what we found out was the general public didn't know anything. And I think Barry had already done a poll amongst friends and knew that. But that the climate scientists are worried about them. It's the number one thing that keeps them up at night. And we felt like we got to get the feedback loops and the reality of what's going on with the Earth into the discussion, which it wasn't at the time. These feedback loops were not being taken into account it's The policymakers and projections of how fast the Earth is heating. And basically what feedback loops are, in this case, they're warming, they're warming amplifying loops. They're self-perpetuating, amplifying loops. And what that means is that we've known for a long time that if you add CO2 to the atmosphere, the temperature goes up. In 1906, a Swedish Swedish scientist said that by doubling the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, you're going to raise the temperature by 4 degrees centigrade or 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit. That was known. But what they didn't know was that the Earth would weigh in and it would have a say in all of this. And, you know, nature is really complicated. And as you raise the temperature, the Earth has reactions. And so there are major, major reactions that are kicked off. And the um, ones that we covered were the permafrost melting, what happens to the atmosphere, the albedo effect, which is the melting of the ice caps, which means that we're no longer reflecting the amount of sunlight that we used to reflect. And our forests, which are no longer, in a lot of cases, absorbing CO2 from the atmosphere, but they're emitting it. And we just basically explain it in a very scientific way, letting the scientists, top science, climate scientists in the world speak, what are these loops and why should we, we should be worried about them.
0: That's great. We're going to get into those loops here soon. We're going to break down each one of those, what they actually mean, what the feedback is on each one of those. Before we do that, Bonnie, you're here with us in studio. You got Richard Gere to narrate the film, which has been screened at multiple high-profile events with the likes of the Dalai Lama, Prince Charles, and Greta Thunberg.
1: Briefly, tell us about this. Sure. The producer, Barry Hershey, who had the idea to do this project, is very much involved in the Buddhist world, and he happens to be old friends with Richard Gere. And so um, through Barry, we got he got Richard Gere to be the narrator of the films. And also through through Barry, we got the Dalai Lama who he's also old friends with. And to launch the five short films, we had a virtual event last January, January of 21, where we brought together the Dalai Lama and Greta Thunberg on a virtual panel with a scientist from, from the film, Sunatali, who's in the Permafrost film, and one of our advisors, Bill Muma. And they had – the Dalai Lama and Greta had never met, but – The Dalai Lama had written a letter to Greta in a book he had recently come out with about climate change, sort of thanking her for her work and talking about how young people are doing great work around climate. And she had never... She wanted to meet him, too, so we were able to get them together in a virtual conversation. So that was really exciting. And around the same time, we ended up getting a distributor in the U.K. who wanted to make a one-hour television version to sell around the world. And so after we had the video footage of this launch with the Dalai Lama and Greta, we were able to incorporate some clips from that conversation into the one-hour version, which was then... It's been sold around the world. It aired on PBS in December, and it continues to be sold. And we also we have a a impact producer helping us in the UK, and he alerted Prince Charles to our film back in the summer. And a couple of weeks before COP twenty six, we got the word that he was inviting us to come and show the film at COP, and he had he had rented out this gorgeous museum in Glasgow for all his events, which were for his Terra Carta strategic markets initiative. And so we were able, Susan and I went to Glasgow and we screened the film and we met Prince Charles. We did a lot of good networking there. And turns out his group is behind this $130 trillion commitment to make corporate world more sustainable and get businesses involved and That's Um, fantastic. Getting more sustainability, yeah. So we have had great traction. We also did an event with the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History last summer where they encouraged people to watch a film and then attend a virtual panel um, so we're doing all kinds of outreach with the, with the film.
0: Oh, that's great. And, and as we said before, the documentary is broken into five parts, four of which represent these different feedback loops. And those, those parts consist, um, as Susan said, there's the introduction or the big picture. There's forests, permafrost, atmosphere, and the albedo effect. Let's start with forests. Simply, how does a tree work? especially part of the feedback loop, and why are they considered the, quote, sweet spot for the environment?
1: You'll learn this in the clip that's about to be played, but um, forests remove between 25 and 30 percent of carbon emissions annually from the atmosphere. And so they're huge storers of carbon. And when when we cut down trees or when they burn in forest fires, they release the carbon back into the air. So it's really important to um, preserve forests because they're our main store of carbon. And with the warming climate, they're in jeopardy because of insect attacks, increased wildfires, drought, so all these things are being caused by a warmer climate and they're they're killing off a lot of trees, that and deforestation combined. And this clip
0: that you just mentioned, uh, let's jump in here. uh, This is a clip from the film. And what we're about to hear explains the importance of forests in storing that CO2 from the atmosphere and how the warming client creates these feedback loops that are threatening the health
3: of the forests. Since carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere, by removing it and storing much of the carbon safely away in their branches, trunks, leaves, roots, and soils... Forests help cool the Earth. In fact, every year, terrestrial ecosystems remove about 30% of fossil fuel emissions, and forests are responsible for most of that. But that percentage is decreasing as emissions increase, steadily raising Earth's temperature and threatening forests' ability to offset the warming. We have warmed the Earth by a full degree and a little more. And forests are suffering increased hazards of fire as they get warm and dry, increased hazards of disease as they become vulnerable to insects, and dying as a result. As trees die, they become part of a dangerous feedback loop kicked off by the warming. As the temperature rises, the climate becomes hotter and drier, and they fall prey to drought, fire, and insects. With fewer trees left, more heat-trapping gas remains in the atmosphere, raising the temperature higher, resulting in even more dieback. As trees burn and decay, the carbon they've locked away during their lifetime, what scientists call a carbon sink, is released back into the air. It's entirely possible we reach a point where we're killing off forests much more rapidly than carbon can be fixed by forests. The net result then is to produce a feedback that's lethal.
0: Susan, there are three different types of forests, and each plays their own significant role. These are the tropical rainforest, the boreal rainforest, and the temperate rainforest. What is the wow factor for each one of these?
2: To make it very simple in the film, we broke, and I think this is the way climate scientists actually do it, broke the forest down into three major worldwide forests. The first is the tropical forest, which covers 45% of all forests in the world. And, you know, we explained really simply, so how does a tree work? Let's get back to the basics. You know, what do we all learn in science class? We know trees take oxygen out of the, I mean, CO2 out of the air and they put oxygen back into the air. But what people forget is that they actually transpire or sweat and they pull with their roots. They pull water out from the soil and they, they transpire it. They sweat it out their leaves. And this makes a humid kind of microclimate and lowers the temperature in the tropical forests by 10 degrees. And the big wow factor is what's, what's setting, off these feedback loops in the tropical forest is the burning of these trees around the edges for agriculture. But what it does is it changes the climate. So what was once a humid, cool environment where these trees thrived, it's they, they transpire less, they take out less CO2 and the climate becomes drier and warmer. And as it becomes drier and warmer, as you cut down these trees, it starts turning to Savannah and they won't grow back. So this is a gun over a cliff, we call it, where this feedback loop has reached a tipping point where it takes on its own killing of the forests. And at a certain point, there's no turning back. And so the tropical forests are turning from carbon absorbers to carbon emitters, because as these trees die, they decay and carbon back into the air. You know, trees and all life is made up of carbon, and it goes back into the air. And, you know, it's a pretty scary thought. The tropical forests are going to be emitting more carbon than they're taking in. The second forest is the boreal forest, which is 29% of all the forests. And it's around the northern hemisphere, the northern part of the planet. And 24% of the northern hemisphere is permafrost. And permafrost is frozen carbon, so frozen dead plants, frozen animals, bones, teeth plants and animals that when they died, they didn't decay. So they're sitting in a frozen state and this carbon hasn't been released back into the air yet. And what happens with these boreal forests is now they're having major, because of climate change, they're having major fires. We're seeing these wildfires. And what it's burning isn't the tree, it's burning the soil. I mean, it does burn the tree, but that's not what's so scary. It's what's in the soil that's being burned and being released into the air. And the third forest is the temperate forest, which is the middle of the planet. That's where we all live. And that's 25 percent of all the forests. And the big takeaway on that one for us was that really we are all looking at the tropical forests. Now we have to say the Amazon is the the planet, when in fact, climate scientists told us that actually the hope of the planet is the temperate forests, that we had cleared a lot of our land forests, our natural forests for um, agriculture but there has been in the last hundred years a real push to reforest and a lot of these forests have made a comeback and uh, there are parts you know we think of the whole there's trees are suffering everywhere well trees are not suffering everywhere it depends on where the microclimate they're they're in on the planet so trees along the pacific coastline for example are doing well because of all the mists off the ocean that keep them cool the problem is lumbering you know if we don't recognize where the trees are doing well and aren't being impacted by climate change and are thriving if we don't keep those trees healthy and we let indiscriminate logging take them down then we're really in trouble and and it's happening i mean we, we all think here you know, we the we, especially me when i went into this having an environmental background thought everybody knew you've got to fight climate change by keeping these trees alive and you know just Right now, they're introducing legislation to double the amount of logging that's going on on public lands. They're continuing to clear out these old forests for wood pellets. I mean, it's not, people know it, but it's not changing anything. And I think really, that's where we have to focus, you know, in our own backyard on how we can stop this from happening.
0: Bonnie, why is there this concept that of cutting down old growth forests and replacing them with new trees is somehow a good thing. But really, it's not necessarily the best solution to reducing carbon in the atmosphere. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I think there's this myth that you can cut down a tree and then just plant a new one to replace it. But the fact is a tree takes 10 to 20 years before it starts storing carbon. At first, it actually does emit carbon through transpiration and it takes it takes a while for a tree to start storing the carbon and it stores it in the tree in the trunk and the leaves and a lot in the soil as well and so if you're cutting down these old growth forests that are storing all this carbon and then replanting it with a new tree you're losing the carbon that's stored in those trees and then you're losing decades of more carbon storage because it takes that long for the new tree to start storing it. So it's really a fallacy that you can just cut down old growth forests and replace them with new trees. So that's something that has to be communicated. And a lot of people don't seem to know this. And that's why it's so important to preserve our old growth forests and keep them intact so they can keep doing their job. And is it true that the the trees emit carbon before they start storing the carbon? They do. They do for 10 to 20 years. And then they start storing it.
0: That's crazy. We're about to go to break here in just a couple of seconds, but before we do so, I just want to point out that temperate rainforest, the greatest hope for the environment, the logging that is happening. Where in the United States do you see this logging happening on a grand scale?
2: North Carolina is where they're clearing out a lot of the old forests through the pellet industry, which is an absolute disaster. And there's a really good film that everybody can watch called Burned. You can find it on YouTube and it explains what's going on. There was a, a... we were told wood pellets good for the environment. It's the opposite, and it's very well explained. And then, you know, the Pacific Northwest is where these really healthy forests are, and where a lot of this lumbering is happening.
0: Great, thank you. We're going to go right to break, and we're going to come back and talk about permafrost and the other feedback loops. Hey, listeners! Quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m on KPFT Houston, and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps, and visit our website, EcoJusticeRadio.org, to check out previous shows and guests, and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview, as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today, you are listening to Feedback Loops, climate change's most critical dynamic, with host Jessica. Aldridge and guest Susan Gray, director and Bonnie Watch, senior producer and writer of the five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, which can be found at feedbackloopsclimate.com. Welcome back. We're here with the director and also the producer and writer of the five-part documentary series Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. This next feedback loop that we're going to speak to is permafrost. I'm going to share a clip from the film, from the documentary. And this clip explains how much carbon is stored in permafrost in the northern hemisphere and what's happening there as a result of the warming.
3: In the Northern Hemisphere, nearly one-quarter of the land is covered by an icy expanse called permafrost. Extending from the surface down thousands of feet, its soil contains billions of tons of carbon-rich plant and animal remains suspended in a perpetually frozen state. But now, with human activity warming the Arctic two to three times faster than the rest of the globe, this permafrost... Is starting to thaw, and alarmingly, it contains twice as much carbon as in the atmosphere today, and three times as much as in all the world's forests combined. As it thaws, microscopic animals called microbes that have been frozen for up to tens of thousands of years are waking up and feeding on the newly thawed carbon remains, emitting dangerous heat-trapping gases. If
1: we
2: were to take all of the microbes on Earth, we'd find that they'd weigh probably 50 times more than all of the animals on Earth. Now, these microbes need to eat, and what they eat are the dead remains of plants and and animals. And as a byproduct of feeding on that material, they produce carbon dioxide and methane.
3: To understand how warming temperatures accelerate microbial activity, you need to look no further than your own kitchen.
1: It's like having a, a chicken in your freezer. You take the chicken out, you put it on the counter, and it starts to thaw. You know, and then you go away for the weekend. You forgot about the chicken that's on the counter, and you come back, and you know the house smells and the chicken's decomposed. That's what happens to the carbon that's in permafrost. It's fuel for microbes. As they're breaking it down and using that fuel, they're releasing greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and methane, into the atmosphere. Susan, explain
0: to us what permafrost is, how it functions, and the feedback loop once it starts to melt.
2: Okay, so radio is a very funny medium to be working in doing this. i so used to having graphs and charts and pictures to explain. So I encourage everybody to go up on our website and you'll be able to really get it, I think, more clearly. But, you know, in summary... A quarter of the northern hemisphere is frozen ground. It's frozen solid. It's the Canada, uh, former Soviet Union. And it's kind of hard to get your head around how this is formed. But over thousands and thousands of years, as plants and animals die, the soil builds up. And because it's frozen, nothing decays. And so, over the hundreds of thousands of years that permafrost has been building up this frozen ground, there are thousands of feet of thickness of all this frozen material, and we haven't had to worry about it. You know, ten thousand years of civilization has thrived on this planet because we've had the perfect climate because it's all been frozen. But now, with global warming, it's starting to melt, and it's proven to be a total disaster because all this carbon that's been safely locked away for, you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of years is now being released into the atmosphere. And, you know, the clip tells you how much there is, but what scientists don't know is how quickly it's going to happen. And that's why you need climate scientists. They're trying madly to figure out. So this time bomb, that could go off. How quickly is that going to happen? And as this, This plant and animal material, this carbon is released back in the air. It comes out in one or two forms, either CO2 or it comes out in methane. And methane is basically when something decays underwater, there's no oxygen, it'll release methane, which is 30 times more potent in trapping heat. So we're watching ground collapse as what was once frozen turns into water. And we're watching lakes appear, we're watching methane lakes, and it's really kind of like a thawing chicken we use to describe it in the film. You're just watching the earth sort of decay. So the climate scientists are all telling us we have to refreeze it because it's really a very dangerous feedback loop.
1: And Bonnie, did you want to add something? Yeah, I just, I wanted to add that all this thawing permafrost is having a huge effect on the landscape. So it's it's literally shifting the landscape and where indigenous people live up in the Arctic, it's destroying towns, buildings are buckling, falling into the ground, there are sinkholes, people are having to be uprooted and leaving their towns. So it's creating havoc on the environment. And as the as the permafrost thaws, it creates, you know, hundreds of thousands of little lakes. And you can actually, in some of them, you can light a match and the methane comes up out of the lake in the huge, you'll see it in the film, huge flame of methane. And there are also these explosions happening that you might have heard about. These crater-like holes are forming. And scientists think that when the ice melts, the pressure gives way and causes this explosion. And a year or two later, it, the lakes uh, fill in with with water. And the water gradually releases this previously buried methane into the atmosphere. So this is happening across the landscape in Siberia. So it is it's causing all kinds of problems. And it's
2: important to note that it's not just causing an Arctic. You know, the Arctic is warming up two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. And this melting permafrost is one of the reasons. But it, it causes, and when we talk about this when we talk about the atmosphere, changes in the way the jet stream moves. And this heat is being being brought down south. And the cold is being brought down south. We're having these north-south swings. And that's where we're getting this wild change in our weather patterns. So it is, we make this point of film. it is having an effect on agriculture worldwide and weather patterns worldwide.
0: One of the things that I found interesting in the permafrost section was this, the idea that the weight, the amount of microbes that we have in the system, the microbes that are eat, eating all this decayed material, right? If if you took them by weight, they're actually heavier than the amount of
1: animals that we have on the planet. Is that the case? Fifty times more than all the animals on Earth. And these are these are all waking up in the thawed permafrost, and, and they're hungry. <laughs> they're eating the carbon. And because of that, they emit carbon dioxide and methane. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the next feedback loop, and that's atmosphere. The clip that we're going to show from the documentary Climate Emergency Feedback Loops next, it explains what is water vapor how it's actually a greenhouse heat-trapping gas, and how that's involved in a warming feedback loop.
3: We're all familiar with different kinds of clouds. White, puffy, cumulus. Dark, nimbus, storm clouds. Wispy, thin, cirrus clouds. Not just beautiful to look at, clouds play an important role in Earth's climate. They're formed by water vapor, a naturally-occurring gas created when water evaporates from lakes and oceans. Water vapor is also a heat-trapping gas. It's part of a dangerous feedback loop that's heating the Earth beyond its natural limits, accounting for about 60% of all global warming caused by heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. As fossil fuel emissions raise temperatures, the atmosphere absorbs more water vapor, which then traps more heat, warming the planet further in an ever-amplifying loop. In fact, the water vapor feedback amplifies global warming from human activity between two and three times. For the past 30 years, Jennifer Francis has been studying how increased greenhouse gases affect the atmosphere.
2: Water vapor is just
0: water in a gaseous form. When you take a pot of water and put it on your stove and boil it, you see steam, which is still in the liquid form, but then it disappears, and it goes into the atmosphere and it's completely invisible. So the same kind of thing is happening in the climate system where as we warm the air and we warm the oceans, more evaporation is occurring from the oceans and putting more water vapor in the atmosphere. Bonnie, can you explain the jet stream and how it plays into the atmosphere feedback loop?
1: Sure. Um, so the clip you just heard was about water vapor, which is a naturally occurring gas that comes from evaporation. And a lot of people don't realize that it's actually a greenhouse gas, meaning it it stays in the atmosphere and warms it. But there's another really important Feedback loop going on in the atmosphere, and that's with the jet stream. And when you see this, the atmosphere film, you'll see a really lovely graphic that helps explain this. But the jet stream is basically a river of wind way above us that encircles the northern hemisphere and it is responsible for all the weather that we experience, at least in this part of the world. So if you picture a layer of air extending from the south to the cold, and because warm air expands, the layer over the south actually rises up higher. And if you sat on top of it, it would seem to go down because of gravity. The warm air is higher up and it flows sort of downhill. But because the earth is spinning, the wind gets turned east and becomes a west-to-east flow of wind, and that's what's known as the jet stream. And the greater the temperature differential between the north and the south air masses, the faster and stronger the jet stream winds blow. And historically, there's been a large differential. The Arctic has been cold. The warm in the air has been south. And so it keeps the jet stream fairly straight with little with little wobbles. But that's considered normal. But now that the Arctic is two to three times warmer than the rest of the globe, there isn't as big a temperature differential and because of this the jet stream winds are weakened mm. and they have much bigger swings from north north and south so instead of this sort of straight straight horizontal line with little wobbles you get these huge swings and that is affecting the weather so because of this it's transferring more heat from the south to the north which makes the arctic even warmer it brings you know can bring cold air down where it shouldn't be and it makes weather get stuck so it could be dry it could be rainy and it just gets stuck in place for a really long time which means our droughts last longer our rainy seasons last longer and so this is this is what's happening and that's why we're having a lot of extreme weather events because of what's happening with the jet stream so that's yet another feedback
0: loop where are we seeing that this pattern? If someone, if you were to point a finger
1: and be like, you could see this happening in Texas, or you see this happening in, well, you definitely see it happening with droughts in the Midwest and when we have periods of rain that last for weeks in like the Northeast. We saw it when the cold air was brought down to Texas last year. Um, so we're seeing it in all kinds of weather.
2: Yeah, so, Australia is Big one, and it started there. The, the climate scientists were watching Australia early on and and predicting this was going to spread around
0: the planet. Wow, yeah, because we we have this cold air going to Texas while we have this hot air going to the Arctic. Right, Susan, could you explain further what is meant by a heat trapping gas?
2: Sure. So in the film, we're trying to give really simple scientific concepts for those of us who think we understand. Uh, global warming but we really don't and I was one of those people I hate to say it's a really simple concept which is that most of the atmosphere is made out of nitrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and oxygen let heat pass in and out with no no interruption no interference but a tiny percentage of the atmosphere is made up of what we're calling heat trapping gases it's 0.3% of all the gas of these heat trapping gases Water vapor makes up 0.25%. So most of the heat-trapping gas is actually water vapor. And, you know, they don't trap the, the radiation coming in, which is radiation from the sun. But what these gases trap is the infrared radiation coming off the Earth, which is bouncing off and going back into space. And the temperature of Earth would be 60 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, zero degrees Fahrenheit is the average if it weren't for these heat-trapping gases. And it's 60 degrees with these heat-trapping gases and with these convection currents to cool the planet. So the second biggest is carbon dioxide, and then all the other ones, the tiny, tiny amounts of gas. But it shows you how tiny little amounts of these heat-trapping gases can change the temperature.
0: Thank you. Hey, listeners, quick break here. We hope that you're enjoying Eco Justice Radio. We air every Monday at 9 a.m., on KPFT Houston and every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on KPFK Los Angeles. Stay connected by subscribing to Eco Justice Radio on all major podcast apps and visit our website, EcoJusticeRadio.org to check out previous shows and guests and get connected with us on social media. For an extended version of this interview as well as other benefits, we encourage you to become a member of our Patreon. Today you are listening to Feedback Loops, climate change's most critical dynamic, with host Jessica Aldridge and guest Susan Gray, director and Bonnie Walsh, senior producer and writer of the five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, which can be found at feedbackloopsclimate.com. Welcome back. We are... Speaking with the director as well as the producer and writer of the five-part documentary series Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, narrated by Richard Gear, we are going to speak to the fourth and final feedback loop in this series, and that's called the albedo effect. This next clip we're going to share explains how the albedo or Earth's reflectivity is in danger from the warming at the North Pole, which is melting the ice and the snow.
3: At Earth's poles, snow and ice reflect up to 85% of the sun's rays away from the surface and back into space, helping to keep the planet from becoming too hot. But over the past few decades, this natural mirror has begun to break down as fossil fuel emissions raise temperatures, melt snow and ice cover, and reduce the planet's albedo. As the planet loses its ability to reflect sunlight, a dangerous warming feedback loop is triggered. The most alarming change is happening in the far north, where the temperature rise is causing the snow cover and sea ice to rapidly disappear. Don Perovich is a sea ice geophysicist at Dartmouth College. For the past 30 years, he's been documenting big changes in the Arctic.
4: There's always been this annual cycle. The ice grows uh, usually, say, for nine or ten months of the year, and then melts for a couple of months. What's changing now is the timing. The melting is starting earlier, the freezing is starting later. We have much less coverage every month of the year, particularly at the end of summer.
3: Global warming from human-caused emissions of heat-trapping gases, carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and others is increasing the temperature in the Arctic two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. Warming is then amplified by the loss of albedo as the reflective ice and snow disappear, exposing the dark ocean underneath.
4: Say it's April and we're flying above the Arctic and we look down at the sea ice cover, it's covered by snow, it's bright and it's white. Now, summer comes, that snow melts you get more open ocean, you're absorbing much more heat. Instead of reflecting 85%, you're absorbing 90%. And so you're replacing one of the best natural reflectors, snow, with one of the worst, the open ocean.
0: Bonnie, what is the feedback loop we are seeing with albedo effect? And why is it that the albedo effect causes the most concern to scientists?
1: So in the clip you just heard, you learn that 85% of the sun's rays are reflected at the poles. So it's really important that we have ice and snow at the poles. Or and, and when because of the warming in the Arctic, a lot of that ice at the North Pole is melting in the Arctic Ocean. We're losing a lot of the sea ice. And when we lose that ice... We don't have as much surface to reflect the sun's rays. And not only that, more dark ocean is exposed, which actually absorbs the heat. So it's a very scary feedback loop where the, the warmer it gets, the more snow and ice melts. And then because of that, more more melts. And then it becomes even warmer because there's less of the sun's rays reflected. So it's this vicious circle of warming. And right now... We scientists have said that in the last 40 years, the volume of the sea ice in the Arctic Ocean has decreased by 75 percent. Wow. And it's only a matter of a few years before the ice is completely gone in the summer. We're about to lose sea, sea ice in the summer, and we could lose it permanently if if we keep going at this pace and that's very scary because it really accelerates the warming to lose all that ice now at the south pole there's a slightly different issue going on because the ice there is thousands of you know miles miles and miles thick we're not in danger of losing that land ice which is very reflective but what's happening there is the glaciers are melting and so the sea ice is rising and those, the water melts more of the glacial ice, so there's more melting happening. And so what's happening in Antarctica is that the sea level is rising. There's more water being melted and going back into the ocean. So it's slightly different issues at the North and South Pole, but they're both scary feedback loops.
0: Wow. Anything else about the albedo effect that you all want to add before we start diving into what, what are our solutions?
2: Yeah, I would say that it's important to know that the Arctic is heating up two to three times faster than the rest of the planet. And the albedo effect is one of the reasons for that. And of all the the feedback loops that we researched, climate scientists were most alarmed by the albedo effect and the melting of the poles.
0: Thank you for that. So, We've talked about these feedback loops and sort of the scary things that are happening to our climate and what's going to be happening to us living on this planet, you know, when with all the climate disruption that's happening. I I want to speak to both of you about what you feel are the solutions to our climate crisis and what will halt the negative effects of these feedback loops. And maybe we can start with you, Bonnie.
1: Sure. So people always ask, what can I do? What can what can an individual do? It's, it's really hard to answer that question. I mean, you can you can certainly make changes, you know, put solar panels on your house or drive a electric car. But I personally don't think that that's really going to make a big difference. We have to look at the bigger, bigger picture, which is to protect forests, stop cutting down old growth trees, protect marshes. We have to let the natural systems do their job of storing carbon, taking it out of the atmosphere. Right now, the ocean takes out a quarter of the carbon dioxide and forests take out between 25 and 30 percent. So we need to let them do their job. We need to hold legislators accountable. We can always, you know, vote. We can vote with our our wallets, too. There are movements afoot that we can join and really try to get legislators and corporations to do the right thing. I just think it takes a huge, huge movement of um, people standing up and demanding change. And it's very hard because it's, it's a very hard issue to solve because it involves, you know, sectors who are exploiting the environment, like, you know, real estate development, the oil and gas industry. And there has to be a complete shift in how these businesses operate and it just it's going to take a huge global effort Susan
2: yeah that's a big question I would say the first thing we have to do is face the truth and I think that's where Greta was really great I mean you when Greta first started speaking out you could just see her anger at what was going on and I think we get to a certain point where we're just numb and we don't want to hear about it and I think there was a big opening with the inconvenient truth where everybody felt like, oh, we know what's going on. And now that we know things are going to change and things didn't change, they're just getting worse. And I think a lot of us have stopped admitting what's going on. I know I had, you know, I thought I knew and I didn't until I started researching it. And then I realized how painful it is and how scary it is and why so many people don't want to face it. And I think we can't, you can't put your head in the sand. It's happening. And we can't pretend it's happening down the road like the IPCC kept telling us we've got more time. We don't have more time. We've got the window. And now the IPCC is changing their tune and saying we don't have more time. And, you know, we had to debate, well, what do we say is a solution in a film? And a lot of the things sound really trite when you say, you know, buy an electric car. It's like, go vote. So we sort of left it to Greta. And what Greta says in the film is... Every great movement has begun with the people. Educate yourself, listen to the scientists, and speak out. And, you know, our film is a great place to start. We have some really great resources that we can recommend. Um, but I think the truth is that we all have to know what's going on, and it starts with understanding the way the Earth works, respecting the Earth, and um respected the wisdom of the indigenous peoples who lived on this earth and knew that we can't base our whole economy and our whole way of living on using up the earth. And a lot of the solutions that are being proposed right now, like we're going to invent technology that's going to suck carbon out of the air, carbon capture is just an excuse to keep living the way that we've been living and not to change back to a sustainable way. And, and I would say we have to turn to the scientists who actually do have solutions. There is, they do know how to do agricultural processes that, that will use carbon out of the air instead of emitting methane, for example. We know that if we grow kelp forests in the ocean, you can get a mature kelp forest in 10 years. A mature land forest takes 100 years. There are lots of ways that we can use our scientific knowledge to go back to a sustainable way of living. And to do that, we have to face two really important things. With the ozone layer, you know, we solved that one, but it was solvable. This one, we're going up against the oil industry, and we're going up against the lumbering industry. Two huge, powerful lobby interests. And that's really difficult to do, but we have no choice. So I'm with Bonnie. You vote, but you have to be educated with go to the polls and know who to vote for
0: and what the truth is. Bonnie, you chose to write and direct the film in a way that is pretty basic in its delivery. Why do you feel that this is important for accessibility and, and the success of the film?
1: Well, Susan and I decided that we wanted to really be very clear about presenting the science. You know, Greta always says, don't listen to me. I'm just a kid. Listen to the scientists. So we wanted to do it in a way where the scientists are talking directly to the audience, telling, you know, explaining very basic concepts. We used a lot of graphics in the films to really show mechanisms of warming, like the CO2 coming out of the... Permafrost, And we have this feedback loop cycle that we reprise throughout the series. So we really wanted to present it in a very simple way that people could understand. We didn't want it to be political. We weren't trying to sway anyone. We just wanted the scientists to tell it like it is, explain what's happening. And we used a special attachment to our lens. You know, the documentary style is usually to have the director sitting off camera and the subject looking off camera. But we decided we wanted the scientist to speak right to you. So we put on a special lens on the camera that made projected our image right on the lens. So they were talking to us as the interviewers. So between that and the graphics and just really trying to explain like how a tree works how it how it stores carbon. We our goal was to to really teach people the the concepts of of what was happening with warming and how the earth was warming itself. So we just wanted it to be accessible we want teachers to use it we want community groups to use it so you know the films are up for free on our website we have a teacher's guide up there for grades 6 through 12 science curriculum places like Khan Academy are using some of them for for their online learning resources so we're encouraging everyone to use it to help get the word out and teach about these feedback loops
2: And can I add to that? I would say also, you know, the real genius came for Barry Hershey, who had the idea. And Barry was very clear, look, we want to get across one simple concept. We want everybody to know what these climate feedback loops are. They're being left out of the models. They're being left out of the political discussions. We want the public, by the end of the year 2022, to be speaking about these and is alarmed about these as the scientists are. And he kept us on it, you know. We kept saying, oh, there's some great solutions. We might go to Brazil and see what they're doing. And it's like, no, we want to explain in a very basic way what is feedback loop. And it started out with these short little films of the web. We didn't intend to put it into, you know, we left open the possibility and shot it in a way that we could turn it into a longer film. But there was so much climate, climate programming out there. We really didn't think anybody would really want this, except for teachers. And what we found was that, you know, the common wisdom of you can't just put a boring science show on television is no longer true. People want to educate themselves and they want to be able to make decisions for themselves and know the facts. And we've had a huge reception to this film, way different than any of us ever thought was you, possible.
0: Susan, you made a comment that you and I spoke to previous to this interview. And I just want to reiterate to the people who are listening that f- the effects of the feedback loop are usually not taken into consideration in the climate disruption, climate change reports. What do you mean by that?
2: I just have this habit of um, being scientific. That's (laughs) good. (laughs) They don't want to give opinions. They don't want to, unless they have the information. So let's take just the permafrost. Okay, so they figured out how much carbon is in, locked into this of frozen ground but they don't know really how long it's going to take for it to be released and how much that's really going to contribute and they run models but for example clouds are complicated because the models are too large and clouds are small and not there are all these reasons why you can't be very precise in saying mm. 10 years from now we will have double the amount of the warming so they don't do that and i think you know government officials are really eager to jump on that and say, okay, well, we can't put it into the model because, you know, they're fighting all these interests, all these you know, logging interests and petroleum interests. And so there's just sort of, there's a conspiracy out there. It just happens that it ends up that they don't put anything in, you know? So so it's not true there's nothing in there. There are There is some room in there for these feedback loops, but it's not accounted for really the scale that it's at. And, and I think they're starting to wake up. The IPCC report shows you they're starting to wake up and say we can't not include
0: them. That's good. During the making of this film and interviewing these scientists, for both of you, what was the one thing that really stuck out to you?
2: How bad it is. You know, that how really how bad it really is.
1: Yeah, and I, I was struck by how there are all these different feedback loops. I mean, there's way more than we presented in the films. These are just four sort of major areas. But there's so many, and they're all working together to amplify the warming. So the thawing in the permafrost is emitting more greenhouse gases, which then help warm the Arctic even more, which melts the sea ice. So they're all interconnected. And the jet stream is connected to the warming in the Arctic and bringing warm air around the globe. It's not just staying in the Arctic. So everything is connected. You can't just disrupt one system without disrupting everything.
0: Yeah. There's a scientist, George Woodwell, who's featured often in your documentary and has been at this for 70 years. What would scientist George Woodwell say is the utmost solution to our climate issues and feedback loops?
2: So I'll go to this one. George was our true north throughout this film. He really is an incredible human being. He's been at this for 70 years. He started out doing the original research on DDT that Rachel Carson used in The Silent Spring. He's a scientist, but he's a brave scientist who sees what's going on. And then he goes and he fights in politics where you see people not implementing what you know they should be doing. And he was um, instrumental in, you know, fighting the whole new zone. And he helped co-found the Environmental Defense Fund. And he really got a lot of lawyers and laws passed during the 60s to fight the clean air and clean water. And you go to George when you're sort of out of steam and feel hopeless about the whole thing. And George is really consistent. And you say to George, George, what do we do? And he says... Very clearly, we have to refreeze the Arctic, and the only way that we're going to do that is to stop using fossil fuels tomorrow and to regreen the Earth. We have to let nature do what it does, and we can't keep cutting down old forests. He's very clear about that. And when you say, "George, is there hope for this planet?" He says, "We can't not let there be hope. We have to hope." And it's that kind, and it's Greta too. It's that kind of moral certitude of we can't not do something about it that makes you realize that we have to do something. And I think once everybody on the planet realizes that we have to do something and stops getting distracted by all these other daily crises that are going on on this planet, I think we can really actually do a lot. And there are a lot of people who are doing a lot But I think there's a lot more to be done.
0: That's a really beautiful way to end our show today we're going to do an extended version on our patreon so if you're listening via the radio please go to our patreon account and check it out become a member before we wrap remind people where to watch your five-part documentary climate emergency feedback loops and also how do they find and follow your work on social media
1: um, yeah. So our five short films can be watched on the web at feedbackloopsclimate.com. And there's a teacher's guide, discussion guides and a science teacher's curriculum posted there as well for people to download and use. And on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at climatefeedbackloops and on Twitter at climateloops. And there's, we have a Facebook page called feedbackloops-climate. So hopefully some of you will start following us and we'll be putting out more more content on
0: those sites. And you can easily find those if you follow Eco Justice Radio on all social media accounts and we'll be posting about this show there and you can easily go and we'll be linked right up to these accounts for you. Thank you to both of you for being on the show today. I really appreciate the amazing work that you're doing for the time that you have spent with us. And just want to remind everyone listening, please go check out Climate Emergency Feedback Loops. It is a great documentary series. Thank you to you both. Thanks for Jessica, having me.
2: Thank you. Thank you for getting the word out. Thank
0: you. Thank you to our guests, Susan Gray, director and Bonnie Walsh, senior producer and writer of the five-part documentary series, Climate Emergency Feedback Loops, which can be found at feedbackloopsclimate.com. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been Feedback Loops, Climate Change's Most Critical Dynamic. For an extended version of this interview, become a member of our Patreon. Please connect with us on social media at EcoJustice Radio, SoCal 350, and Adventures in Waste. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed you know what to do subscribe to our podcast share the episodes get that information out there and help us continue our efforts by joining our patreon or making a donation to the show A project of SoCal 350, the show can be found on kpfk.org, kpft.org, all major podcast apps, and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and JP Morris, executive producer Jack I, producer and co-host Jessica Aldridge, co-host Carrie Kim, and engineer and original music by Blake Quake Beats. And until next time, remember, the power is yours.